There were 60 members of the Onik Shabbos, only three survived the war. But so ultimately they were victims, but they were also uh, just like the ghetto fighters who said they wanted to die fighting. These are people who wanted to die writing, you know. That's writer, director and producer Roberta Grossman making clear that much like Steven Spielberg's seminal Hollywood film about the Holocaust, Schindler's List, her new movie about the secret band of writers who chronicled Jewish history from the Warsaw Ghetto during World War II, is ultimately about survival and bearing witness amidst the slaughter of millions in the Nazi concentration camps. Nancy Spielberg, who executive produced the film about the Oneg Shabbos, Yiddish for Joy of the Sabbath, said her master cinematic storyteller brother, Stephen, had some sage advice from the get-go. The best advice that I got in a roundabout way from my brother is get on board with Roberta and work on this project because this is a story that we are going to capture and teach to our children. And every aspect of the film, of this documentary, was accurate. The documentary film that features plenty of faithful reconstruction borrows from the book of the same name about the secret archivists, Who Will Write Our History. In October 1940, the Nazi invaders ordered Jews living in the Polish capital, around 400,000 or a third of Warsaw's population, into a cramped and crowded ghetto. Led by Emanuel Ringelbaum, the underground group recorded every detail of life there, interviewing everyone and documenting everything without prejudice. Just before the courageous but doomed April 1943 uprising against the Nazis in the ghetto, the chroniclers buried their precious archives in three locations, two of which were unearthed in the years after the war, the buildings above long since destroyed and burned. Only three of the original 60 or so members of what Ringelbaum called the Sacred Society of Truth-Tellers survived. Beyond the detailed, objective history of ghetto life the Oneg Shabbos left behind and defiance of the genocidal racism of the Nazis, Roberta Grossman says that the murder of modern-day journalists such as the Saudi dissident Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul last October is a reminder that history can always repeat itself. In an era where journalists are under attack and the truth is under attack, um, the, the murder of Khashoggi, the imprisonment of so many journalists whose only job is to tell the truth. Um, I think that the message of the film is quite powerful when you stop and think about those people and what they're trying to do in a very similar light. They're, these were people who were willing to die for the truth. <laughs> Well, I'm Matt Wells of UN News, and for this edition of our Lid Is On podcast, my colleague Jessica Gigi sat down here at UN headquarters in New York with the two filmmakers and started by asking Nancy Spielberg why they'd been keen to bring their documentary to the UN. We're thrilled to be at the United Nations, first of all, and we, we actually screened the film at UNESCO headquarters in Paris, and we did a simultaneous global screening event in 55 countries, which to us was huge. It meant that there was an audience for this message, 
and to be at the United Nations, which is, you know, that melting pot of everything, and it's rife with issues and problems and intolerance itself, even though that's not what it's supposed to be. This is a place that we would love to symbolize finding the dialogue and finding the voices to move forward and to find tolerance and to work together. That's why, you know, what I think is important about being here. And it's really, it is a huge honor for us. I'm very happy that we're here at the UN to screen Who Will Write Our History in 2019. Because if you think about the history of the United Nations, in many ways it's a direct result of World War II, World War I and World War II. And it was an effort on the part of nations uh, around the world to say we can do better than this. Um, after World War I and World War II had, you know, the carnage of the loss of life, the, the destruction, the horrible suffering, the Holocaust. Um, so the UN represents uh, a hope, a hope that, the, that things can be different, that the world can be different. Um, the UN isn't always perfect, um, but the world isn't perfect. And I think that one of the biggest problems right now, one of the problems that caused the suffering of the, uh, of the Jews of Europe and the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto was nationalism. And that idea, rather than patriotism, the idea of nationalism as being us against you, and we have to hate you, um, and you need an enemy in order to build yourself up, I think that, that's, that nationalism, is, nationalism is the enemy of democracy. And I think that our characters and our people uh, you know, suffer terribly because of it. As you said, the UN was definitely born in, out of the ashes of the Second World War, and we have a quite long memory, and we're very aware of that, and which is why every year we have Holocaust remembrance activities, honestly, around the world, from Zambia to Colombia to Nepal and back. Um, we really work hard to raise awareness, and that's why we're very proud to welcome you as well. And what were the personal journeys that each of you went on that led you to create this film? I was working on another film, when I read a review of Sam Cassow's book, Who Will Write Our History, and I got it and read it, and about 20 pages in, I was completely outraged because I've spent my whole life reading about the Holocaust, and I'd never heard of the Onik Shabbos or Emanuel Ringelblum, and I felt it was the Dead Sea Scrolls rising from the rubble of the ghetto, and I wanted to make a film that would bring the story to hopefully millions of people around the world. I first heard about the story when Roberta and I were working on another film called Above and Beyond, and she had left developing Who Will Write Our History to direct Above and Beyond, and she started talking about it, and I did not know a lot about the Holocaust in any way, shape, or form. I wasn't brought up with knowledge, a lot of knowledge of that. So to me, it was you know, a shocking story. And uh, as we all know about Anne Frank's diary, and then she went on to describe, this is like finding 30,000 diaries, personal diaries. That really hit me, to be able to see the victims of the Holocaust in a, in a real personal manner instead of just a number. You know? So I, I asked her, actually, <laughs> we're a good team. Yes, so I, I beg her. We got her. together. <laughs> You know, it's so interesting what you said about uh, victims because one of the things that's so great about the archive and the writing in the archive and the creation of the archive in such hellish conditions uh, is that they have a lot of agency. They're not behaving like victims. They're behaving like spiritual resistors. They're behaving like they have something to do and they have a way to fight back and they're going to do it to the best of their ability. So although they ultimately 
60 of, there were 60 members of the Onik Shabbos, only three survived the war. But so ultimately they were victims, but they also, uh, just like the ghetto fighters who said they wanted to die fighting, these are people who wanted to die writing, you know. Um, In a sense they didn't die because we're hearing their story today. Right. I, that's very true. That I think that was their dying wish, is that they would not be forgotten and they would write the truth and that would continue. So um, it did validate and they succeeded in what they wanted to happen. I mean, that the, the documents were found. I mean, at least two caches were found. The third one was never found. But, um, you know, it's the first eyewitness accounts of, of somebody that had escaped uh, the camps. And it's, it's just so rich. It's rich with the personal, it's informational. So, you know, it, it really was, it started off as reporting, right? As a... They, the, at the beginning, their goal was to co collect the primary documents, both eyewitness accounts written by a wide variety of people, um, but also objects, you know, uh, ghetto goods in Yiddish, or the, the white oh, armbands yeah. arm, arm band with the blue stars, the ration cards. They were collecting primary materials from which they thought they and other historians would write the history of the war from the Jewish point of view after the war. As it became more and more clear that perhaps not everybody was going to survive, and they started learning about mass murder uh, in the areas around outside of Warsaw and in other parts of the Eastern Europe, then they started documenting crimes so that the Nazis and the ind as in general and the individual Nazis in particular could be brought to justice, but they were also collecting credible evidence to, which they smuggled out through the Polish underground to try to effect re rescue, which didn't happen. It seems like it's a combination of collecting evidence for a trial in their time period and against real concrete individuals, but at the same time, proof that the pen is mightier than the sword, that courage is immortal. Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the Nazis, a big part of what they were doing in order to prepare populations, the non-Jewish populations wherever they went, was to really ratchet up uh, anti-Semitism wherever they went. I mean, obviously anti-Semitism is endemic to Europe, but they, uh, they ratcheted it up, and in Poland in particular, they equated Jews with lice and typhus. So that it was an idea that they, when they built the ghetto, they were doing it to preserve the Poles, right? But also to show that the Jews were less, were less than human and they were subhuman, so they always had cameras in the ghetto, cameramen, uh, and, and also still photographers to show the Jews in the worst possible light so that they could show those images to the world and say, look, the Germans are doing a great thing by wiping these subhumans out. So this was, a, the, uh, the Onik Shabbos archive was the other side of the story. Horrific parallels with what we hear today about immigrants, Muslims, and others. How have the lessons you've learned, um, how can they inform what's going on and how can they make a difference? Well, one of the reasons why this film, we hope, um, will, why we made it was to send that message, to send the message that, first of all, um, you don't have to fight with guns and knives, you can fight with paper, with words, with the written word. And so that at least, you know, takes it away from some of the hatred and divisiveness and intolerance that we have today and put it back into where there's some dialogue and there's also that whole issue of, um, telling the truth and if we don't learn from our history we are doomed to repeat it which is part of the story is we have to get messages out and I suppose and we don't really learn very well do we 
because this did not happen in ancient times. This happened 70 plus years ago. And then, of course, with all the other problems going on, um, we just have to continue to try to make a change and to get people uh, to connect and to stop dehumanizing each other, but instead to understand the differences and to accept somebody for whatever their belief is or how they look. Um, it's, it's a huge challenge, as we can see, because the world's pretty messed up. Was there a time when you were immersed in producing the film that you looked at your Twitter feed or uh, some news of the day and just saw a shocking parallel? Could you tell us about that? I think that when um, I started making the film seven years ago or eight years ago, that there was no way that we could know that it would come out today um, in, in the way our world is today, with uh, right-wing nationalism being ascendant, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, um, and even in our own country to see um, uh, neo-Nazis marching down the street saying Jews will not replace us and having our own heads of government not condemn that kind of speech. Um, we had no idea that this was going to happen. I mean, God forbid. So um, the, the parallels uh, are becoming very, very obvious now. Um, and we realized as we were finishing the film that this was a pretty good moment for the film to come out and hopefully have some impact. Um, I think that ultimately the members of the Onyx Shabbos are very inspiring. It's not necessarily complete a depressing film because they, they're inspiring. What they did under the conditions that they did it in, um, they created an archive of 30,000 documents pages of documents that they buried, that they had the foresight to bury, to speak to future generations, and they succeeded. Um, so they did tell, end up having ownership of how their stories were told. They wanted to make sure that their obituary wasn't written by someone, the people who hated them and were wiping them out. They, they wanted to uh, tell their own story. If you just broaden, zoom out, and look at the world, beyond the United States and anti-Semitism? Are there other situations that concern you or where you feel that the people themselves should have agency over their own story? And how would you, how would you suggest doing that? One of the, the lessons of, of, the, of the Holocaust in general is that um, nations need to provide refuge for people who are in, in danger, people from other countries who are in danger. I think that that's uh, not a new lesson to be learned from the Holocaust. I think that's a very old lesson to be learned from the Holocaust, that, that we need to um, provide refuge for those in, those in need. In terms of writing your own story, people, I mean, there are people uh, all over the world in, in terrible conditions, who, people in Iraq who, or in Syria who are journalists um, using social media as their form of milk can in an era where journalists are under attack and the truth is under attack, um, the, the murder of Khashoggi, the imprisonment of so many journalists whose only job is to tell the truth, um, I think that the message of the film is quite powerful when you stop and think about those people and what they're trying to do in a very similar light. They're, these were people who were willing to die for the truth. How did they find the courage? What gives them the strength? You know, I often ask myself, what gives them the courage? How does a 19-year-old who, you know, we think of 19-year-olds today and what their focus is and their interest, how does that person have the, the ability to put aside their personal struggle for survival to do something for generations in the future of which they most likely will not be a part of? And it's such a grand scheme. And 
you know, and again, I also, and we sometimes people do this, what would I have done if I were in the Holocaust? Would I have been a survivor? Would I have succumbed to it? What gives people the will to uh, maybe almost have an out-of-body experience and look for something greater good? Maybe that is how they survived, by looking to the future. Maybe that effort of writing, I think in the film, Sam says that that was everything was writing. It became their whole reason to, to exist. Writing provided people a sense of continuity between their past lives and their current life in the ghetto. So, you know, if in particular if somebody was an intellectual or an artist or a, a writer, a teacher, historian, then to continue writing was a way of saying, I'm still here. Um, and then they didn't know at the beginning that they were writing for the future and that they would not be part of that future. But once they began to realize that, I think that writing helped to uh, deal with the psychological terror and the psychological, uh, I mean, the, the terrible fear that they were living under. That if you had a sense of purpose, then it helped you deal with the day-to-day -day conditions. I have to ask you, Nancy, um, did you get any advice from your brother whose film Schindler's List touched so many hearts around the world? Well, first of all, I sort of make it a rule not to ask my brother for advice because I may not want to listen to what he has to say. Uh, Roberta really was the queen of this film and it really was her guidance and we only let my brother see it afterwards. <laughs> but I think that it's definitely affected us and many people um, how what Schindler's List produced after the film. First, the film, you know, suddenly made people who never wanted to listen to, they sat up and they listened. And then to create the Shoah visual, the USC Shoah Foundation afterwards, where there were testimonies, visual testimonies, that again made people stop and listen and realize that the, the power of hearing these stories in the first person and the urgency to capture them because the next generations and the younger kids today will not be able to sit across from a World War II vet or a Holocaust survivor and say, like, tell me what happened to you. And so we have to figure out a way to, you know, to capture that. And I think really that's the best advice that I got in a roundabout way for my brother is get on board with Roberta and work on this project because this is a story that we are going to capture and teach to our children. And every aspect of the film, of this documentary, was accurate to the you know type of nails used in the wall. I mean, if there was a death notice hung in the, in the Warsaw Ghetto in the film, it was the actual death notice. Because there was this sense of responsibility that we are creating a visual historical document. And we wanted to make sure that it was authentic. And it's interesting, the connection, I mean, we didn't really think about it when we started working on the film together, but there really is a, a through line between the Onik Shabbos archive and your brother's uh, Shoah Foundation. Because when Rachel Auerbach, who's one of the three survivors, she left Poland in 1950, and she started the survivor testimony department at Yad Vashem. And in her tenure there, in her, before she died, she oversaw the taking of like 50,000 testimonies. And so the, the Shoah Foundation takes directly from that work, so it builds on that work. So it's, uh, it's all very connected. I think my brother actually said that he was inspired by the Oinek Shabbos because they were the first people 
to do what he later did in, in helping to set up the uh, Shoah Foundation. So there is that parallel. Maybe the formats change because the, you know, within the time from the Oynik Shabbos to today, um, people aren't really reading as much. They are more visual. We've become a much more visual society. So he had to adapt to the medium that would be accepted by the masses. And these days, it's really more visual tools. Um, well, thank you very much. I'd just like to close on, on a note of hope. Um, you've really immersed yourself in a hideous moment in history, and it is something that we need to teach not only our own children, but children whose families haven't been affected, and children around the world, and children in generations to come, because it's in a way a universal story of persecution, although it is particular. Um, so I do want to ask you, being immersed in all of that, um, where do you find the hope, and um, how is this more than just telling our children of a horrific past, but also telling them about a hopeful future. There's a lot of hope in the story of Emanuel Ringerblum and the Onik Shabbos archive. The hope is that ordinary people can do extraordinary things. And that means you and I have a voice and we need to use it. If we see injustice being done to ourselves certainly, but to anyone else, um, we need to stand up. We need to say something. We need to make noise. And so I think that the, ultimately, the Onik Shabbos represents humanity at its best. Poetry, music, literature, writing, uh, painting, the desire for human beings to express their love and their highest ideals. And they saw themselves as cultural fighters against the barbarism of the Nazis. So I think, I find it very inspiring, like, oh, maybe what we do as filmmakers, as writers, musicians, maybe it does make a difference. And we need to keep doing it because we're carrying the banner of culture um, in the world today. I, th I agree. I think that um, finding the everyday hero is very hopeful, very inspiring, because anybody can do something heroic. And I think that's a message that, you know, it does mean going out of your comfort zone, but it's for the greater good. And I think we have to look at the greater good a little bit better, a little bit deeper. Well, both of you are examples of people who've preserved this story and passed the story on to mass audiences. So in your way, you're being heroic as well. Thank you very much for the Thank time. Thank you very much. writer, director and producer of the film Who Will Write Our History, which tells the extraordinary story of the secret archivist of the Warsaw Ghetto, Roberta Grossman, together there with executive producer Nancy Spielberg. They were in conversation with our own Jessica Gigi. Well, that's it from this edition of our Lid Is On podcast from UN News. I'm Matt Wells. The music you're listening to is, of course, John Williams's haunting theme from Steven Spielberg's film Schindler's List, recorded last year at the main Holocaust commemoration event here in the UN General Assembly Hall. Thanks very much for listening. Music.